you know, the vision is good, but the action that needs to be happening right now is very weak. Especially developed countries need to take action right now. Otherwise, these visions became all illusion. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. Last weekend, COP26, the two-week global summit aimed at tackling climate change, wrapped up in Glasgow, Scotland. The outcome? The Glasgow Climate Pact, an agreement that aims to hold the world to no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade of global heating above pre-industrial levels. It is an agreement that has been hailed by some for keeping the dream of 1.5 degrees C alive and criticised heavily by others who believe it is nowhere near ambitious enough. This is no longer a climate conference. This is now a global North Greenwash Festival. A two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. In the end, it almost brought Alok Sharma, the president of COP, to tears after a frantic series of last-minute negotiations took the conference into overtime and changed the pledge to phase out coal to one that promised to only phase down coal. I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. My guest today is Masako Konishi, expert director for conservation and energy at WWF Japan, who was in Glasgow for the entire two weeks of the conference and joins us to give her insight into what was agreed upon and the role Japan played at this crucial climate summit. Masako Konishi, welcome to Deep Dive. I know you've just returned back from the UK and are currently suffering a nine-hour jet lag. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for welcoming me here. And you have now attended every single COP conference since 2005, right? So what is this? Is this your COP26 is your 15th, your 16th time at COP? Yes, this was my 16th COP. Okay, so you're quite a veteran then of these big climate conferences. Could you describe the atmosphere at COP26 for us, did it feel different to previous years where you've attended? I think this was one of the most important COP, maybe since 2015, which we have agreed the Paris Agreement. Two reasons, I, I think, for that. One is, of course, we had prime ministers coming on first week, which is very, very unusual. And because of that, the tense moment became more tense and we needed to, you know, basically we are there in, at Glasgow, but we are not even allowed to get in and we are just in the conference room watching the PC screen to what is happening there. So the first week was really stressful. For the second one, I think we had a very good result out of this COP. This was a COP that we need to finalize the 2030 reduction target. Mm -hmm. And if we miss this reduction target, then we cannot achieve the goal of the Paris Agreement. So from that perspective, we really needed to have a good outcome. So for two reasons, this COP was very, very special. So there were lots of world leaders in attendance, but also the conference came in the wake of a new report from the IPCC that was published this summer that really stressed the importance of limiting global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. So the conference seemed to me to be imbued with this 
whole extra sense of urgency. Yes, it's correct. Yes, IPCC report really warned us if we miss this opportunity, then we will miss the chance to stay 1.5. This new report really told us that the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is even big. And if we do the business as usual, we are going, you know, like 3 degrees, which is really, really devastating. And if we cannot take the action right now, then we really need to, you know, be prepared for a very, very horrible world. So this was really our one of the last chance. Mm-hmm. And so there were, I think, four main goals coming into this co- conference. One of them is the one we just talked about, which is kind of securing an agreement to try and get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and secure serious decarbonization by 2030, even before 2050. And yes, that target of keeping global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade. And at the end of this two-week summit, countries came together to sign the Glasgow Climate Pact, which builds upon the Paris Agreement that you mentioned before. What do you see as the most significant achievements coming out of COP26? Well, the most notable thing out of this COP26 is that actually around 200 nations have agreed to make the goal of 1.5 as the Paris Agreement goal. Because as you may know, the long-term goal of the Paris Agreement was hold the temperature rise below 2 degrees. And if possible, we make effort to stay 1.5. So the entire language of the agreement then was tightened to focus on this 1.5 degrees target rather than the 2 degree target that was agreed before. Yes. So 1.5 was not a mandatory target before COP26. So it was a huge challenge. And, you know, this is an international agreement and it's always very hard because it's been agreed with a hard negotiation. And then making this 1.5 as a common goal, you need to change the international law. But amazingly, parties have agreed to make 1.5 as the main goal of the Paris Agreement. It was written in the COP26 decision. And I would need to stress that how hard it is to, you know, have 200 nations on board to agree to the same goal of 1.5. So this was a big moment. Yes, I know this agreement has come under sun criticism for not feeling ambitious enough, but it does feel slightly miraculous that anything gets agreed upon at all at a conference with so many different nations and so many different competing priorities. What kind of specific actions were agreed upon to try and actually meet this target of 1.5 degrees C and reduce emissions to net zero? Well, in order to achieve net zero by 2050, the most important thing is to have the emission by 2030. So most of the developed countries, you know, United States, European Union or Japan or even Korea, they have already pledged zero by 2050 before going to COP26. So the question was, if the emerging economies such as China or India or Brazil, these emerging economies, which is emitting a lot, could come up with something necessary for 2030 or not. But 
as you know, China didn't show up, the China Prime Minister didn't show up on first week, and they haven't updated their reduction target by 2030. But some emerging economies, such as Thailand or Vietnam, they have pledged zero by 2050. So, as a result, if you count long-term reduction target, so basically the 2050 target of every countries, then the temperature prediction is 1.8 degrees. So for the first time, it, the temperature goal became below 2 degrees, which was a very good sign. But then, if you count the 2030 target of each nation, then it's not at all enough. So you're saying there's a discrepancy between the short-term 2030 targets and the mid-term 2050 targets. And this is important because the later that countries leave it to make emissions cuts, the more carbon enters the atmosphere in the meantime. And even if the end goal of net zero by 2050 is reached, there will be more warming as a result. Exactly. So if you only think about this 2030 target, the temperature prediction will be 2.4 degrees. So our goal of 2050 is fine, but the real action is not enough. So the COP26 decision decided, okay, update your reduction target again by next year. So this is kind of ratcheting up mechanism being embedded in the Paris Agreement, but the COP26 decision made it more clear that every time you come here, you need to think about updating your reduction target. Right, so previously countries had to update their emissions reductions targets every five years, which is another reason why this particular COP was so important, because it was the first time since Paris 2015 that countries were due to update their emissions plans. But now out of this new Glasgow Climate Pact, there's an agreement that says that countries will update their plans annually from now on, and all the signatory nations will need to come back next year for COP27 with more ambitious targets still. Yes, Paris Agreement is five year cycle. So every five year, you are obliged to lower your target. You always need to progress each time you submit a new reduction target. But this time, it says that, no, no, not every five years, come back with updated reduction target next year. So this is a very strong signal coming out of COP26 decision. Some of the other agreements that came out of COP26 were kind of out of the main framework of the agreement. It was agreements between smaller subsets of nations and businesses um, who wanted to perhaps pledged to more ambitious targets. So, for example, some of the pledges I saw coming out of COP26 included one that agreed to phase out coal by about 40 different nations, another that's trying to reduce deforestation to zero by 2030 that's accompanied by significant funding. And there was an agreement between nations and many big car makers, the Japan-based Toyota being a very notable exception, that they would only sell electric cars and vans by 2035. How did these smaller agreements come about and how important do you think they are coming out of COP26? 
these uh, really strong leadership out of UK presidency. Prime Minister Johnson was asking the government that is coming to COP26 bring four things. So, cars, cash, coal, and forest. Prime Minister Johnson said, okay, bring coal phase-out plan by 2030 if you are developed countries. And if you are developing countries, then bring phase coal phase-out plan by 2040, which is really a surprising thing to say to the parties. And last COP decision, there wasn't any agreement which mentioned about coal, but COP26 first time mentioned about coal. You know, first it was coal phase out, and then parties negotiated and really disagreed, and then at the end of the day, it became phase down. So not phase out, but phase down. But at least it is the first time in COP decision that mentioned about coal. And it is a big thing because it means that everybody acknowledges coal is the worst thing for tackling climate change. Um, and the Prime Minister Johnson, as you have said, they build up a coalition, international coalition. So um, the countries which are willing to phase out coal get together, and it's a big coalition, and also one for uh, stopping deforestation, and one for using more electric vehicle, and one for bringing finance to developing countries. And there is also methane projects. And so there are, I think, seven or eight initiatives that came out of this Prime Minister Johnson's initiative. And all of these initiatives are kind of bonus to the main COP agreement, right? Agreements between smaller subsets of countries and some businesses that feel able to agree to more ambitious targets than the main Glasgow Climate Pact agreed to. Exactly. Paris Agreement, you need to agree every nation. So around 200 nations need to agree in order to have the COP decision. But this initiative is, you know, by countries who are willing to do so. And if there is a big mass in this group, that can be a really big, big movement and also pressure to those who haven't signed up. So... This four initiative was really big coming out of COP26. It's interesting talking to you because you seem quite optimistic about this agreement. But I know that many people view this summit as somewhat of a failure and think that it wasn't nearly ambitious enough. Were you happy with the outcome of what was agreed at Glasgow? Well, I have to say it's more than I expected, the outcome. But at the same time, there are so many challenges. As I said, you can be optimistic if you think about 2050 plan, but you have to freak out if you think about countries' 2030 target because you are not near even two degrees. And one more thing is that finance issue is very weak. So the Paris Agreement, unlike Kyoto Protocol, it includes all nations. And developing countries have agreed to join this Paris Agreement only because their reduction action is supported by finance and technology transfer from developed countries. So it's a kind of a conditional target. So this was agreed as part of the Copenhagen COP summit back in 2009, where developed countries said that they would provide developing countries with $100 billion annually from 2020 to help them transition to green economies. 
how much have developed countries actually delivered on this target? It's, I think it's less than $90 billion. So the developing countries are very angry with developed countries. You haven't keep your promise. Now, do we need to take action when we are so suffering from poverty and also now coming COVID-19 crisis? We don't have any resources to do that. So there was a huge, huge discrepancy what is needed and what needs to be done, especially from finance issue. And it's also a huge trust issue. So if the developing countries are angry with developed countries because developed countries have not kept their promise, it's a trust issue and developing countries cannot move forward. So, you know, the vision is good, but the action that needs to be happening right now is very weak, especially developed countries need to take action right now. Otherwise, these visions became all illusion. We'll be back after this. Hey there, it's Oscar, the host of Deep Dive. One of the best ways that you can support this podcast is by subscribing to the Japan Times. And we are currently offering a special 30% discount on the first six months of a digital premium subscription. Our premium plan gives you unlimited access to all of the Japan Times' brilliant journalism, plus a number of extra perks and features like removing all of the ads from the website, which makes the whole thing a much nicer reading experience. To take advantage of this offer, all you need to do is head to jtimes.jp slash deepdive30 and enter the promo code DEEPDIVE30. That's DEEPDIVE30, all in caps, when you subscribe for a 30% discount. The link and the promo code are in the show notes. Thank you, as always, for your support. So we mentioned a couple of issues there, such as coal and financing, and I think both of these move us on to the topic of Japan and Japan's contributions to these discussions at COP26. So, you know, leading up to COP26, how did Japan position itself going into the conference? And, you know, what did it say it was going to bring to the table and contribute to these discussions? Well, Japan used to be a laggard country in the run-up to the Paris and after Paris. But last year, as you know, former Prime Minister Suga has pledged to zero by 2050. And in this year's April, they have also pledged for the 6% target by 2030 and even aiming for 50%, which is at least in line with the Paris Agreement, two degrees. So Japan changed, especially since last autumn. And now I would say Japan could be in line with the European Union and United States led by President Biden. And then Prime Minister Kishida showed up in the first week World Leaders Summit, even after the election. So I knew it was hard for him to come, but he nevertheless came in order to show the world Japan is willing to be with countries to tackle climate change, which was a good sign. 
Mm-hmm. And he gave a speech right at the conference. I think he gave he joined the stage with、uh, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. What did Kishida say in his speech, and and you know how was it received at COP? Well, what he said was Japan is also tackling climate change with the rest of the world, and Japan pledged forty six percent target by two thousand thirty, and Japan brought. New and additional finance to especially adaptation of the developing countries, which was a big issue, and、uh, Prime Minister Johnson really thanked Japan for that, which was good. But one thing really was not welcomed by the world is that Japan have not pledged coal phase out, although Prime Minister Johnson said bring phase out plan by two thousand thirty. If you are developed countries, but Japan didn't mention about it. Instead, Japan said that we are going to make these fossil fuel power plants zero emission by using hydrogen and ammonia. And not only for Japan, but Japan aims for deploy these technology to Asia. So this wasn't welcomed by especially. Environmental NGOs and Japan got fossil award. Fossil award is a very, very you know dishonorable award, which is given by the International NGO Society to countries who is doing a bad thing for climate change. And this, of course, is not the first time that Japan has received this fossil of the day award. Yes, for the last five years, Japan is constantly receiving. This fossil award for promoting coal. So Japan is now considering being regarded as coal addict country. Once even the Secretary General of UN Guterres even mentioned there are countries who are addicted to coal, which is basically Japan. So Japan is very infamous for promoting coal. Right, and this translates through to Japan's own. Domestic energy targets, and if we look at the new basic energy plan, which was announced in April this year, Japan is still planning to source 19% of its energy from coal by 2030, and only about 36% from renewables. Compare this to a country like the UK, which has agreed to phase out coal entirely by 2024, down from 40% of its energy mix in 2012, and already sources 43% of its electricity from renewables. Which, to me, does show that it's possible to have a much higher reliance on renewables and makes Japan's 2030 targets feel very unambitious. Why is Japan so addicted to coal and so reluctant to phase it out? It's a very good question. I think one of the reason why is because Japan has been delayed in promoting renewable energy technology. As you know, before 2011 of the Great Earthquake, Japan thought renewable energy is not good for Japan, and really wanted to promote nuclear as well as fossil fuel power plants. I think still there are so many conservative people here in Japan that still thinks. Nuclear power and fossil fuel is realistic energy that we can depend on, and renewable energy is not something that we could deploy massively. This kind of conservative thinking 
is still very prevalent in Japan that even at the government's committee, which also I am a member of, they talk about really, really, you know, old thinking. So if you go to a renewable energy advanced country, it's not a problem anymore. If you deploy weather forecast system, you can deploy more than 80, 90, and 100% renewable energy, not dream anymore. But if you talk with Japanese, you know, these kind of power generation types, then you, they still think renewable energy, we can deploy only 30 or 40 percent. So that is also reflected in the basic energy plan for 2030. As you say, coal is 19 percent, and renewable energy is only 36 to 38 percent. Compared to the other nations' energy plan, by 2030, renewable energy, 36-38% is really, really unambitious. And it's really a pity that Japan is, you know, not trying to promote renewable energy as rapidly as required. And also Japan relies on nuclear energy to 20-22%, to 22%, which is very unlikely because nowadays oh, most of the nuclear um, stations are shut down and operating is more, you know, 10 or something like that, and only 6%. So 6% to 20% is really unlikely, meaning that by 2030, we may use more coal power than planned. So this is one of the reasons why Japan cannot say we phase out coal. Mm. So it didn't sign up to become one of these 40 countries that said they would phase out coal by 2030? Of course not. Of course not. And you said earlier that Kishida mentioned in his speech at COP that Japan would be trying to use hydrogen and ammonia to try and green its coal plants into the future. But my understanding is that these technologies are still in their infancy and haven't really been used at scale yet. So if Japan does go down this route and these technologies aren't viable basically the country could just end up with coal plants that still emit vast amounts of CO2. Exactly. So, you know, if you say using ammonia or hydrogen, it may sound really a bright future technology, but you have to know that it's still very much still development stage. And even the basic energy plan plans to use it only 1% of the energy, meaning that there are two big problems. One is this making hydrogen or ammonia, the process is heavily, you know, related to fossil fuel. So if you make hydrogen out of renewable energy, then it's good. But Japan is planning to make hydrogen out of, you know, very uh, brown coal, which is really CO2 intensive. And the second one is it's very costly. So if you think about solar energy becoming really cheap in 2030, then if you want to use a new technology, which is still development stage and still very costly, it's really economically not good option. So it's not realistic. You know, we're, we 
mentioned earlier on that COP27 will be held next year. It will be held in Egypt um, and all the signatories to the Glasgow Climate Pact will be asked to provide these updated and more ambitious targets, as you said, ratcheting up what they agreed to this year around. Do you think Japan is actually likely to increase its um, ambitions at the next conference? Um, I see it very unlikely because Japan has already pledged 46, which is a big challenge for Japan. What I hope for is that now 46% is what Japan has pledged, but they are saying that aiming for 50%. So I hope that this aiming for 50% will be more like a set goal for Japan and also bring phase out coal plan to Egypt. (laughs) Yeah, that's the big dream. Yeah. And now that Glasgow's wrapped up, we move into this phase where action is needed to deliver on these targets to prevent these visions from turning into illusions, as you said earlier. So what do people need to do to ensure that Japan sticks to the targets it has laid out for 2030 and 2050? I think Japanese people need to demand the government to set policies because usually Japanese people are very polite and they are not so vocal to the government. But I think this is the time when people need to step up and say that we need carbon pricing, we need more renewable energies, we need more action towards climate change, we need more adaptation for the coming impacts of climate change. When we say that, then the politicians would hear us because they know that people are interested, okay, I need their votes, why don't we set the policies in place? So people's power is very important to push the government to set the necessary policies in place. Not only Japan, but each country. It's the same, I think. Masako, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure talking. Thank you very much too. That was Masako Konishi, Expert Director for Conservation and Energy at WWF Japan. A huge thanks to her for battling through a nine-hour jet lag to join us for this episode. You can find more from her and from WWF Japan at wwf.or.jp. Before we go, a reminder that all Deep Dive listeners can currently get 30% off a subscription to the Japan Times. Instructions on how to sign up for this offer are in the show notes. Subscribing to the Japan Times is one of the best ways you can support Deep Dive going forward and help it to improve. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do write us a review or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people to discover the show. And if you have a topic suggestion, a guest suggestion, or things that you think we can improve upon, email me at deepdive at japantimes.co.jp. I'm always keen to hear from you. Thanks as always for listening, and Podskarisama. summer.